I invite you to remain standing and turn with me, if you will, in the scriptures to Luke chapter 7. If you're using a church Bible, you'll find that starting on page 863. We're going to look at verses 18 through 35 uh, this morning, but I'm going to start by just reading verses 18 through 23. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 23. Beloved saints, this is our God's word uh, recorded and preserved for us that we might hear it and in hearing it know our God this morning. Please give your attention to the reading of it. The disciples of John reported all these things to him and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And that will end the reading of God's word. At this point, we'll, we'll come back and read the rest in a few minutes. But let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in his word this morning. Our gracious Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know how we struggle to believe your words of comfort, how we're quicker to believe the enemy's lies than to believe your truth. If we're honest, your grace sometimes sounds foreign to our selfishness, beyond the realm of plausible. Your word, your grace, your mercy simply sound too good to be true. So help us to not judge you as if we were the standard. Help us to judge our doubts according to your word. Open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds to just how high and inexhaustible your grace truly is. And do this as we open it. Open your word and spend some time in it this morning. We pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Expectations have an almost unparalleled power in our lives. Your expectations are your basic beliefs about how the world works what the future will look like, what the consequences of certain decisions and actions will be. You have expectations, you have assumptions, and every day you function on those. Every day you operate according to those assumptions and expectations. What kind of job you'll have, what your health will be like, what kind of marriage you will have, and what your children will be like, and on and on. And when you're young, you have expectations about everything. You say things like, when I'm older, I won't make the mistakes my parents made. When I'm older, I'll make sure that my family, and then you fill in the blank with whatever's important to you. You say, when I'm older, I'll never get stuck in an unsatisfying job. When I'm older, my children will understand, and again, you insert what's important to you. You say, when I'm older, I'm going to take care of my health so that I never have to deal with something, whatever that is. When I'm older, 
I'm going to travel. When I'm older, I'm going to drink life to its fullest. But then the realities of life come. Your parent, you become parents, but, but not perfect ones. Your job's hard, and if you're honest, often unsatisfying. Your children misunderstand you. You find that good health is harder than you ever imagined to obtain and maintain. You don't have the time, the money, or the energy to travel. You're not drinking life to the fullest. You're just trying to hold on. And there have been a lot of studies lately about the consequences of unmet expectations. Because our expectations seem to be getting higher and higher. More and more people expect themselves to be exceptional. They think financial comfort and security will be easy, if not automatic. They don't consider the possibility that life will be a struggle. And then when life fails to live up to these expectations, anxiety, depression, discouragement, our passage today is about unmet expectations. No less than John the Baptist struggles to understand the ministry of Jesus. The crowds do as well. It's a common experience. And, and we want to see how Jesus addresses each, John the Baptist and the crowds, as well as one further expecta- uh, unmet expectation. That expectation of judgment by those who feel crushed by their sin. Because he addresses that as well. And for these, the unmet expectation means eternal life. And so as I look at this passage, as we look at this passage this morning, uh, I really want to drive home this point. Unmet expectations can be one of the greatest stumbling blocks in life, but can also bring surprising grace and comfort. Unmet expectations can be hard to deal with stumbling blocks, but they can be the source of great comfort and even eternal life. That's what we want to see uh, in this beautiful passage uh, over the next few minutes. Uh, John, the Baptist, is struggling as our passage opens, and that struggle, if we're honest, is startling, if not outright shocking. Uh, You might remember uh, where we left John in chapter 3. After announcing Jesus and baptizing him, we're quickly told he was then imprisoned. And we know why. John was bold in his confrontation of sin, and he did not appease those in power. Eventually, he offended Herod and his family, and that resulted in his imprisonment. And so from a distance, from his prison cell, he hears about Jesus' ministry after that. As he goes from town to town, he hears about the healings and the sermons But things don't seem to be adding up. He had warned, we read in chapter 3, he had warned those in power. He said, I baptize with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize in the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so as he's carted off to prison, his expectations were that his incarceration would be short-lived because that one who's greater and going to baptize with fire is here, so the fireworks are about to start flying. 
But as time dragged on, his expectations weren't coming true. There was a gentleness to Jesus' ministry. He was popular with some, but not with others. He spent more time speaking with and visiting the poor and dejected than he did calling down fire from heaven. And John begins to wonder if Jesus really was the one they were all waiting for, the Messiah. And that's shocking for us to think about as we consider John's life and ministry. His birth, we saw early on, was attended to with miracles and prophecies. Uh, John was the one that Isaiah and Malachi uh, said would come and announce the way. And we think that of all the people who might be given to doubts, John the Baptist probably shouldn't be on that list. But here he is, asking Jesus, are you the one? Should we be looking for another? And so he sends two of his disciples to ask Jesus, and it's hard to read his tone. Is it anger? Are you the one? Is it, is it despair? Are you the one? We don't know, but we do know he's confused, struggling. When the disciples arrive, they ask the question. But, but you know Jesus, he, he doesn't ever answer questions directly. That would, where's the fun in that? Instead, he takes them around. Come with me. And he starts healing people, lots and lots and lots of people. Diseases, plagues, demon possessions. The deaf are given hearing, the blind are given sight, lepers are cleansed. Can you imagine watching that in, in, in the space of an hour? Watching dozens of people healed from lifelong ailments, thought to be uncurable. And then he goes and he says, tell John. What you have seen and heard, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. It's a reference to the prophecies made in Isaiah 29 and 35 and 61 that the coming of the Messiah would be marked out with healings. And the purpose of those healings was to make his identity unmistakable, which implies that some people might mistake his identity and miss it if they didn't know what to look for. And really, that's why God said something else through Isaiah as well. He said this, The Messiah will become a sanctuary, a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it and they shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. One of the things that God said would mark the coming of the Messiah was that many of those in Israel would not be pleased with what they saw when he came, that they would stumble over what they saw as it failed to live up to their expectations. And that it certainly proved too, so much so, that even John the Baptist is stumbling. In fact, that's really what Jesus says in verse 23. Uh, A better translation would be, blessed is the one who does not stumble because of me. He's praising those who are able to see Jesus for who he is and how he ministers and to be content. We need to be careful. He's not saying John's not a Christian. He's not saying that, that, that John has abandoned the faith. He has some very high praise for John in the next few verses. Right now, he's simply acknowledging that unmet expectations lead to doubts. 
And that's even true for someone like John the Baptist. And that should be both a warning and a comfort to you. We are often hardest on ourselves. We convince ourselves that if if we really love the Lord, we'd never struggle, we'd never have doubts. We expect an ideal of ourselves that no one can live up to. And as you see John struggle, know that you're in good company. And that whatever Jesus has to say to John, he has to say to you as well. But before we look at at those words of Jesus about John, I want to drop down to the bottom of our passage and look at the last few verses and Jesus' assessment of his generation. Uh, let, Let me read verses 31 through 35. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sing a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man has come eating and drinking. You say look at him a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Jesus has this little analogy where he he compares his generation to little children who go out and sit in the marketplace. And the children play some happy music and they expect everyone to stop what they're doing and dance. They sing a sad song and they expect everyone to stop and break down in tears. The children believe that they're the center of the world and that everyone else's lives revolve around them. Those are their expectations. And yet, no one dances, no one weeps, no one even seems to notice the children, and if they do, they don't seem to care. They just go on with their lives. And the children don't know what to do. Their worlds are shattered. They come crashing down around them because suddenly they realize they aren't as important as they thought they were. And rather than adjusting their expectations to reality, they rage against reality. They yell at everyone. They're anxious. They're discouraged. They reject society for failing to live up to how they think things should be. And this is what Jesus says his generation is like. They have a very narrow view of how things should be and any deviation from that leads to their wrath. John came preaching repentance. He's known for fasting. In fact, too much fasting. He wasn't a drunkard. A bit of a prude, actually. He was too judgmental and all about wrath. So they accused him of having a demon. Jesus comes along and And he doesn't fast often enough, and he drinks too much wine. He's too friendly with sinners and tax collectors, so they accuse him of being a drunkard and a glutton. Narrow expectations. One step to the left, and you're rejected. One step to the right, and you're on trial. And Jesus wants to know how they are any different from the children in the marketplace. 
He wants to know how they think that they'll never be disappointed. He wants to know why they are surprised when life doesn't go exactly the way they expect. Of course they're anxious. Of course they're discouraged. How could they not be? Good expectations are the ones that are proven true when they meet up with reality. Bad expectations are the ones proven false when they meet up with reality. And it's okay to be honest. All of us have some of each. That's not the issue. The question is, what do we do when our expectations fail to account for reality? Do you rage? Do you crash and hide? Or do you make adjustments? The wise person makes adjustments because the wise person wants to live in alignment with reality. That's what verse 35 is saying. Wisdom, the ability to live in accord with truth, it's vindicated in time. When your expectations keep proving false and you don't adjust them, you prove yourself foolish. When you learn to adjust to reality and not be surprised, you prove yourself wise. Many in Jesus' day refused wisdom. When God failed to live up to their expectations, they didn't reject their expectations, they rejected God. That temptation continues today. So let's go back and read verses 24 through 30 in the center of our passage. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? What then? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees... And the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. When when Jesus turns to the crowd and he starts to talk about John, he has a reason. We need to remember the question that started all of this. Are you the one, or should we look for another? That, that, that question came from the lips of John. And, and Jesus is about to respond to John's question, but, but he's going to use John to answer it. It's brilliant. Turning to the crowd, he asked them why they all went to John. Was it to see someone shaken by every little breeze, someone afraid of his own shadow, someone afraid to say anything that might be displeasing to someone somewhere, possibly, maybe? Was it to see a rich and coddled person, someone who's never seen an honest day's work in his life, someone deeply out of touch with the common person? Or did they go to hear a prophet, someone sent from God, someone who can finally speak with authority? Of course, the answer is they went to hear a prophet. 
Someone who could speak truth with conviction, with authority. Someone who wouldn't be intimidated by popular opinions or those in power. Someone who wasn't a slave to the comforts of this life. But Jesus goes on. He says, John is the one Malachi the prophet said would come and prepare the way of the Messiah. He could have as easily quoted Isaiah as Luke did in chapter 3, the voice of the one in the wilderness. And Pastor Brian read for our call to worship this morning. John was the one chosen by God to have the greatest privilege imaginable. He would be the one to herald the coming of the Messiah. He would be the one to prepare the way. Something no one in history, the history of mankind, no one other than he had that privilege. And in this sense, he's greater than all who preceded him. And and that's saying a lot. Greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua, greater than David, greater than Solomon. That's a bold claim. But Jesus is not saying that that John is is personally greater and stronger, more holy, that he's impervious to doubts and struggles and sin. He's saying he's greater by way of calling what his ministry was. He's the only one given the honor of announcing that God has come into the world. The only one permitted to be the forerunner of the Messiah. The only one allowed to announce that salvation has come to God's people. He's great, not because of who he is, but because of his unique relationship to the Messiah. It's an issue of proximity and privilege. He was given a privilege that no other in the history of mankind was given. And whom did he announce? This one who's greater than Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon. This one chosen by God to to identify and announce the Messiah. Whom did he point to? He pointed to Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is saying, John, you're the proof that I'm the Messiah, the one you are looking for, because you're the one Malachi said would point him out. It's like Paul when he said to the Corinthians, when they questioned his authority as an apostle, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Then he says to them, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If, if others, to others I am not an apostle, at least to you I am, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Really what Jesus is saying is, John, you know the truth. Don't let your imprisonment and my patience lead you to doubt what you know to be true. Be patient. Wait. Watch. Trust. And you will see. As great as John is, there's one Jesus says is greater. The one who is least in the kingdom, the most humbled, the greatest servant, the meekest, the lowest, that one is greater than John. 
And that shouldn't surprise us. We've already seen that, that John's greatness was one of proximity and privilege. John's already confessed that there's one of whose sandal he's not worthy to untie. And whoever that is, he's, he's, uh, whoever that, that one is, John is blessed to be associated with him because that one is greater. Now we know who it is. But what's important here is that Jesus is telling us that his own greatness is seen in his willingness to be brought low, to suffer, to serve, to restrain his strength in order to bless others. Ironically, it's those very things that made John question whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. But Isaiah had foretold a Messiah who would suffer and serve. And he had warned us that It would be a stumbling block to many, and indeed it's proven to be. And so the religious leaders stumbled, and and John started to stumble. And if we're honest, sometimes we do too, when we look at Jesus' meekness, his patience. Sometimes we stumble because of Jesus' suffering. But more often, we stumble because he allows us to share in his suffering. God says that we know we're heirs of heaven provided we suffer with him. And that causes us to stumble. We look at our pain, our unmet expectations, our struggles, and we say, are you really the one? Or should I follow another? It's then that we need to remember what our Savior looked like in this world. He was lifted up onto a cross. He was given a crown, but it was made of thorns. He showed great kindness, and he was punished for it, even crucified. He was the least in his own kingdom. And he's greater than John, and he alone can give life. And that means that all those who belong to him, those who are united to him, are heirs of his greatness. They are co-heirs of glory in him. They are, in a sense, closer to Jesus than John the Baptist was as herald. And in that sense, they're greater than John. Our response to Jesus is very important. There are two responses to him recorded in our passage. And both of those had to do with unmet expectations. The Pharisees and the lawyers had their expectations. They expected a strong political leader. They expected someone who would look at them and praise them. He'd select them for important uh, roles. They, They would be his trusted advisors. Certainly they would not be the object of his rebuke and his ridicule. And so how did they respond to their unmet expectations? They rejected Jesus. And verse 30 says, In so doing, they rejected the purpose of God. They stood at odds with God's purposes in this world. But there were others there whose expectations were also unmet. It was these who had gone out to John, those who were baptized by him. 
sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, the lowly, the broken, those who were absolutely certain that if they ever came face to face with God, that it would mean certain death and destruction for them. And yet when they came face to face with him, they met with something they never expected. Mercy. Grace. Forgiveness. Love. Kindness, patience, gentleness. A a king who would wear thorns for them. A Messiah who would hang on the cross to forgive their sins. A God who would be a servant, who would become the very least in his own kingdom for them. Talk about unmet expectations. Gloriously unmet expectations. When you deserve death, when when you expect judgment and condemnation, is there anything so glorious as unmet expectations? We have a king who fails to meet our expectations in another way. When, when when presidents, kings, prime ministers, dignitary, high officials, uh, they take office, often one of the very first things that they, they do is they pose for a portrait, something that will commemorate their time in office after they leave, hopefully before they go grayer. And you know what our expectations are for those portraits? Something regal? Something that's both somber and hope, uh, hope-inspiring? Something to make the leader and the people uh, proud. So what kind of portrait would you expect the king of heaven to leave to commemorate his time on earth? Something larger than life? Something that underscores his power? Something that clearly says there is none greater? Once again, our expectations go unmet, and gloriously so. Our Lord, as he, as he stared down the cross to come, he left his disciples a portrait that underscored that he was the least in his own kingdom. That he was willing to be brought low, to suffer, to serve, and to restrain his own strength in order to serve others. And so look around. Our, our walls aren't decorated with larger-than-life portraits We have no accurate record of his appearance with or without an austere and regal look on his face. We have only bread and wine. Reminding us that because he was willing to be the least, he is greater than John. So the bread and the wine, they they come with his assurance that when we own our own weakness, our smallness, our need, that we are great in his eyes and that we are the unexpected heirs of his kingdom. Praise God for unmet expectations. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive uh, this gift this morning. And please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for not bowing to our expectations. For many are unhealthy and foolish, short-sighted and selfish, But you are wise and you are patient. You always have the end in sight and are good in mind. 
And so we thank you that our expectations of judgment go unmet when we surrender. When we surrender to he who is least in the kingdom and greater than all. We praise you for gloriously unmet expectations. Amen.